Well, good morning again, everybody. What a great morning already, huh? Yes, amen. Oh, yeah, we can clap. Thank you. That's good. Good. Hey, just uh, just real quick announcement, and then I'm going to ask you to stand back up for the reading of God's Word, so enjoy your rest for a moment. Well, actually, my first announcement is, it, I've realized no matter where we worship, no one sits right here. It's like the splash zone. All right. I had to do it. It is a splash zone. All right. Hey, so everyone is invited uh, to join us for uh, lunch after service or fellowship luncheon. Um, we have tacos. Uh, what's great is it's the same lady, or her, her sons, that we had tacos whenever we first looked at this building several months ago when it was just a white wall. And uh, it looks really good. It's amazing. Praise the Lord. So you're invited. Uh, that also means, uh, so I don't forget, parents, please pick up your kids. Um, Yes, uh, we're thankful for all of the, the, the leaders who are serving children's ministry. Uh, babies through sixth grade, praise the Lord. I mean, I love them being in here, but praise the Lord. And um, yeah, so yeah, so you're all invited to come and stay, um, and then we'll just exit and go down the, the hallway there, and then uh, right in that courtyard is where the taco truck card is at, and then uh, we invite you to join us for lunch and just celebrate what God's doing. And uh, praise the Lord. So with that, we're going to continue on in our series in Ezra. And uh, it, it's only because God is God that we are now going to talk about the importance of worship. And uh, praise the Lord for that. So if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, please turn to Ezra 3, 1 through 7. Ezra 3, 1 through 7. And it reads, in early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. Then Jeshua, son of Jehozabak, joined his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, with his family in rebuilding the altar of the God of Israel. They wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. Even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its old site. Then they began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord each morning and evening. They celebrated the festival of shelters and prescribed in the law, sacrificing the number of burnt offerings specific for each day of the festival. They also offered the regular burnt offerings and the offerings required for the new moon celebrations and the annual festivals as prescribed by the Lord. The people also gave voluntary offerings to the Lord 15 days before the festival of the shelters began. The priests had begun to sacrifice burnt offerings to the Lord. This is even before they had started to lay the foundation of the Lord's temple. Then the people hired masons and carpenters and brought cedar logs from the people of Tyre and Sidon, paying them with food, wine, and olive oil. The logs were brought down from Lebanon mountains and floated along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa, for King Cyrus had given permission for this. A brief prayer. God, thank you again for who you are. Thank you for your word, Lord, that guides us, instructs us, and reminds us that you love us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that allows us to understand your word. Thank you for the opportunity to come and worship in this place through song, through worship, through fellowship, uh, through greeting, Lord. We are so thankful to be here. 
We're most of all thankful that you are here. So Lord, as we prepare our hearts, we use me however you see fit. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. We love you and we thank you and praise your name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. So part of the reason that I felt led to talk about Ezra and Nehemiah and go through this series I had mentioned before was um, just really the heart of worship and the heart of um, rebuilding the temple, the heart of um, coming together as God's people uh, and, and in preparation for us moving in. And, and what is so wonderful is to see how God is so faithful in the Old Testament and New Testament today and forevermore. And um, I'm going to interrupt myself because I just saw my note. Sorry. When we are reading the Bible, there are Bibles underneath the chairs. <laughs> I just had to say it. Sorry. All right, let me try again. All right, unless you're in the front row, maybe that's why you don't want to sit in the front row because there's no chair in front of you. All right, let me try that again. I really wanted to say that. I apologize. All right, going back to it. Worshiping the Lord through his word. And now you know where his word's at. All right. So anyways, the, the whole hope was, is going through Ezra and Nehemiah is to see how important it is to gather together and worship the Lord. I don't have to tell you that. You're all here worshiping the Lord together. And um, it doesn't matter where you're worshiping. But also part of what I was hoping to do as we walk through Ezra and Nehemiah is to realize over and over again, there's three main themes that we'll see over and over again that God is faithful regardless of the people. Isn't it good news that God is faithful regardless of me, regardless of you? That would be scary if, if his covenant was wholly dependent on us because we would fail, but it's wholly dependent on him. The best way I, I understand this description is, is whenever you make a deal, a covenant, and the person, God, pays for your half and his half and doesn't wait on you. And that's just a reminder and what we'll see over and over again as we continue on through this series is that God is faithful. Last week we talked about God stirring the heart of his people to respond. And now as he stirred the heart of these 50,000 Jewish people, less than, 10%, less than 5% are coming back to rebuild Jerusalem. One of the first questions that came to my mind was, why does the return of God's people really matter? Why is this an important part? I mean... They were able to read scripture, the Old Testament, their scripture. They were allowed to pray. Although they were in captivity for 70 years, they were still allowed to worship God. Granted, there were some hiccups with Nebuchadnezzar, with Daniel, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But for the most part, they were able to. So why, why Jerusalem? Why is that so important? Why is it so important? And it's important because God's purpose, always on earth, is to have his people gather so he could be worshipped, so he can remind us of who he is. In the New Testament, we see that places are popping up all over the place. We live in a time where each community has a church, ideally, and if they don't, that's why we send missionaries, where God's people will be gathered, where his name will be praised and his presence will be known. That's why it's so great to be here, but we are praising him and making his presence known even when we were in Paulette's backyard, the Beechler's backyard, at the Fuller's uh, coffee table or dining room table, 
when we were in wardens, his name was known then, just as his name will be known here in this building. But the story is really a story of new beginning. It's a, also a, a new passion, a new stirring of people, a new life. And that's really what we'll see here. And we read all of Ezra 1, and I skipped a little bit of Ezra 2, not because I didn't want to cover it, but there's a genealogy, and um, there's a lot of names, which I will cover in Nehemiah. It's the same list. And essentially, if you feel shorted, you can go back and read chapter 2, but chapter 2 essentially gives a long list of everyone who came. And then they broke down the Levites to make sure that they had the priest. And then if you couldn't uh, prove your ancestry blood all the way back, you wouldn't be invited to be a priest. You, of course, could come. But if you're writing this story, think about this. If you're writing this story in, in chapter one of your book and you're writing a story of all the Israelites being stirred, God stirs the heart of Cyrus, the pagan king, the bad guy, to let them go after 70 years, and then you wrote, you know, everyone who was coming, what would be the next thing that you would describe? The journey, right? It's 900 miles. You would probably write how it took them four months to get from uh, Babylon. Now Cy Cyrus owns it, so now it's Persia. You would, wouldn't you write about this long journey about how the dads and the moms would argue the whole way? About how the children were saying, are we there yet? Wouldn't you include that? I mean, that's the story of my life, and we only live 15 minutes away. Wouldn't you write that? Wouldn't you write about all of the arguments, all of the issues? Or wouldn't you even write about how God was faithful in your journey? Has anyone ever taken a cross-country trip, and when you get there, you're like, I thought we were going to kill each other, but praise the Lord, here we are. Wouldn't you include that in the story? I think I would. But really, if you go from chapter 1, the stirring of Cyrus, the pagan king's heart, to the stirring of the Israelites, chapter 2 talks about all the people, them getting organized. And then chapter 3 has nothing to do with the journey. What Ezra does, what he decides to do, is immediately talk about the need for worship. I mean... At the very least, I would talk about the description of what Jerusalem looked like after 70 years. If you remember, uh, the Babylonians, whenever they would conquer an area, they would conquer another area and would take some people here and put them there and put some people there and scramble them all up. I would at least in include that. I would describe what Jerusalem looked like and how disappointed I was that it looked like rubble or something. But that's not what Ezra does. God inspires him to write the purpose and the focus of everything, which is to worship God. So this morning, there's three main things that Ezra points out, and I find it amazing that we're in this new building, and I do believe it's the three main things that we need to focus on. Because as exciting as it is to be here today, next week it will be exciting, especially for those who are in children's ministry who missed out on all the fun. But in week 17... Year one, year three, year seven, will we be just as excited to come and gather and worship the Lord? And the answer is we should be. But what Ezra does is he helps us focus on these three main things. And I think that if we keep this focus here while we're in this building for as long as God has us here, it will really go a long way for our purpose as followers of Christ. And this morning, if you're not a follower of Christ, hopefully you will see what it's all about for us as followers. 
and our prayers that you will also want to be. So the three main things that we're going to look at is the first thing that Ezra focuses on, the first three things is he focuses on the altar, then he focuses on the feast. That's not why we're having tacos, but kind of. And then he focuses on the temple. So he focuses on the altar, the feast, and the temple. The altar, we'll see, is offering yourself to God. The feast is remembering what God has done. And the temple is focusing on God's presence. So they altered the feast in the temple. So as we consider this, the altar. The altar is really at the heart of it, offering ourselves to God. That is the beginning of worship, is offering ourselves to God. We're always going to worship something. We're always going to worship something. Ideally, it should be the Lord of the universe. Now, granted, we don't necessarily have little, little statues, little idols that we uh, set up that we could worship, but sometimes we worship our spouse, money, success, future, savings, vacation, etc., etc. But the very first thing that Ezra focuses is on the altar, which is the offering of ourselves, the stirring. Last week, we talked about the stirring. God stirs the heart of the people, but we have to respond to that stirring. And sometimes we just, oh, I'm good. Maybe next week, maybe next month, maybe whenever I get my ducks aligned when I'm ready to. And specifically, what we've read and what we'll go through is a burnt offering. Now, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were told to um, perform several different kind of offerings. Grain offerings, half-burnt offerings, burnt offerings. And we can spend weeks going all the different offerings. And they all signified a different sacrifice unto the Lord. But the burnt offering is very specific because the burnt offering is 100% to God. Some of the offerings that uh, the people would come and bring, uh, some would be st- uh, kept to the side for the priest. And I'm okay with that. You, you can offer whatever you want, 10% to the priest. I'm just kidding. But the burnt offering was 100% of the sacrifice. If you want to see this, you can read through Leviticus starting at 1 and going all the way through. And what it would say is if you brought a bull, you brought the entire bull and burnt it. If you brought a sheep or a goat, whatever you could afford, you brought the entire offering. And it was burnt until there was absolutely nothing left. Why is that so important for a burnt offering? Because eventually, what the Israelites did not know then, and they thought it was about the temple, is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate burnt offering. Although he wasn't burnt at the cross, he did not hold back anything. He was 100% offered for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus would be the ultimate sacrifice. God would open up a way when there was no way to reconcile with him. And Jesus at any time could have said, nope, but he didn't. Again, some of the sacrifices would have been kept to the side, but the burnt offering. So the main point of the burnt offering is the entire part is offered to God. So the question is, have you given all of yourself to God? Granted, we're sinful. We can't do that. But is it your desire to be 100% available to Christ? And of course you want to say yes. And then whenever I start bringing out some inventory things, and you're like, well, maybe not that. It's the whole description of, God, you can have everything in my room except for this room. 
or this closet. But the burnt offering, and that's what Ezra starts off. He doesn't describe the journey. He immediately starts off with the burnt offering. Everything to Christ. The burnt offering, all of it. Nothing is held back. And it's also not just a sign of, of Jesus belonging to Christ, that he gave up himself and that nothing would be held back. But, offering, but the burnt offering offers is very significant because there's no anticipation or expectation to get something back from what you surrendered. That's so important. The burnt offering is, here you go, Lord, and I do not expect anything in return. Now, if we're honest, there's been many times that when I was younger that I made a lot of deals with the Lord. A lot. All right, Lord, if I, if I volunteer for nursery, this is not a plug for nursery, but if you want to, go ahead. All right, Lord, if I volunteer to change diapers, all of them, or maybe one, this is what I hope to get in return. I'm going to give you all of me, but I expect something back. I know I've told this story many times, but part of the reason why whenever I felt called to the ministry is I didn't want to be a poor pastor. I know that's lame, um, but I didn't want to, so I made a deal with God. I said, all right, God, I'll be the greatest churchman ever. Change the diapers, I'll show up on work days, I'll volunteer in youth group, I'll even help in the, the dreaded sixth grade group. I, whatever you want, I'm yours, as long as I don't have to follow you, is what I was saying. But the burnt offering is giving to God 100% with no expectations of getting anything in return because you already have everything that you need. So that's what, that, that immediately right there gets rid of the prosperity gospel. If only you pray this much, if only you give this much, if only, if only, if only. Again, if we circle back, I mentioned that the covenant of God that God made with his people through his son was 100% based on him. Again, as we did our One Another series, we, I really focused in on Romans 12. And Romans 12, 1, uh, I don't have it on the screen, but it just says being a living sacrifice. That means a living death, a burnt offering. I give you all of me, Lord, do what you will. Those are scary and dangerous prayers. But yet that is what is offered. To, to offer it completely. The altar so if you look back at verse 4, verse 4 says, or excuse me, uh, verse 1, or I'll get it right. Verse 2, it says, Then Jeshua, son of Jehoshaphat, joined his fellow priests in Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, with his family in rebuilding the altar of the God of Israel. They wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings in it, as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. Immediately, what's a, we got to build an altar because we have to offer ourselves completely to Christ, to God. We have to give it all. I offer you everything, Lord. Ezra states there is a reason for this motivation to offer because we love him. There's many reasons why we offer ourselves to Christ, just a few. We love him, we're joyous, we're thankful, we're full of gratitude. Those are some of the times we come to Christ, but what are, what are some of the other motivations to worship God, to offer ourselves? Fear. Fear. 
So read verse 3. Even though, so instructed by the law, the man of God, verse 3, even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its old site. Then they began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord each morning and evening. But why did they do that? Even though the people were afraid, they were afraid. Because again, there was a lot of local residents. They were already scrambled. Imagine, if you will, if you can put this in your mind, that the Israelites for 70 years were living in Babylon, not their own town. All of these people, including the Samaritans, were living there, not their town. And now the Israelites come back into town. It's almost as if, and it's not a great illustration, but the way that my mind went is, it's almost as if the person that you bought your home for from shows up 20 years later and opens up the door and starts to eat. And who, welcome in. And that's what they've done. But they were so afraid... And 50,000 may sound a lot, but they were just a small amount and they were afraid. So Ezra wanted to remind the people that it's okay to be afraid. We're still going to offer ourselves to the Lord. There were so many different groups living there that the, in Jerusalem that they took over. And those people were not happy they moved back in. And we're going to see that there's going to be a great issue in a couple of chapters here the next chapter. But Ezra tells us how to deal with our fear, not this our joyous time. We have to worship the Lord, all of us, when we're afraid. Ezra tells us that we find strength in God in the regular time of worship, in a regular moment of time. So how do you handle fear and doubt? You offer yourself to God. The hard li- when, the li- when your life becomes difficult, that's when we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. More and more. Difficulty and anger should lead us back to Christ, not away from Him. God can handle our disappointment. We worship ourselves. We offer ourselves. And again, worship is not just music. A lot of times we think, oh, we're going to worship through song, which is true, but we all worship through the, through the Word. We worship in everything that we do that we dedicate back to the Lord. It belongs to Him anyways, We're really not owners. We're simply renters of everything. So after after right away, they, they, they set this up. They do burnt offerings morning and evening. They come and they offer. They're so focused on the Lord. Can you imagine the scene? They're coming to the altar. They're not even going inside. They haven't built the temple. They haven't built the wall. There's just an altar. And they're going and they're praising the Lord. Leviticus describes how it must be done. Can you imagine being an outsider just watching? Oh, there goes another bull. There goes another goat. Are they going to eat it? Or, I mean, I like burnt ends, but that's extreme. They're just watching us, and they don't care because every morning and every night, they dedicate themselves back to the Lord. And then second, in verse 4, the feast. So if they offered themselves as a living sacrifice to the Lord, they started there, then the feast. Verse 4 says, they celebrated the Feast of Shelters as prescribed by the law, sacrificing the number of burnt offerings specific for each day of the festival. The, the Feast of Shelters, or sometimes called the Feast of Booths, or sometimes the Feast of Tabernacle, it's called different things. And essentially what this is, is God asked 
the Israelites, after he rescued them out of Egypt, after they were in the wilderness for as long as they were in the wilderness for the 40 years, once they got to Jerusalem, once they established themselves, and even before the temple of King Solomon was built, the first temple, God would have them once a week go out back into the wilderness, build a little tent, and live there for a week. Sounds like fun. The celebration, the, the, the whole reason for the celebration or feast of shelters was not only to celebrate what God had done by leading them out of the wilderness, not just to remember and celebrate how good God is and what he's done, but it's also a new experience of God sustaining them again and again. So what they would do, again, picture this, once a week or once a year for a full week, they would go out in the wilderness, set up their tent, and wait on the Lord and offer sacrifices for a whole week to be reminded of how good God is. Not just to the ancestors, but how good God is now. They would leave their homes completely for a full week. Because now it wasn't just a story of their great-great-grandparents. It was a story that they had themselves. That's why everybody in here, especially the young people in here, your relationship with Christ must become your own. You can't just live off of mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, auntie and uncles, omas and opas. It must become your own. And God offers that. He offers not only a celebration of what he's done for your family, but for you. And that's why this festival was so important. It's not simply just to remember a joyful time or a time that was difficult, but the Lord led you through it, but to experience the joy of the Lord in hard circumstances, that God is presently carrying you. Not to remember God's promise, but to experience his promise. And God doesn't just save you from your past. He saves you in the now and he will save you in the future. Now, now, let's think about this. So they build the altar. The Israelites build the altar. They start doing sacrifices. Woo, this is good. I can't wait to build the temple. So the very first thing they do after they start sacrificing, they said, we need to go on a camping trip. So the Israelites had so much to do. They had to clean up. They had to get jobs, organize their jobs. They had to build houses. They had to establish their culture again. And for me, what I have found, at least for myself, is I really like to celebrate when things are done. I never like to celebrate too early. It's like whenever you think you score a goal and you start to celebrate and you don't. When you hit a home run and you start doing your home run trot and someone robs you of your home run. That's how I was raised. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. Anybody else grew up that way? But here, before they've done anything else except offer themselves to Christ, as they say, we're going to go and celebrate the, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacle or shelters. We're going to go out. Now think to yourself, would it be challenging for you? You're in a new area. You have to build your house. God has stirred your heart. He called you to a new place. You've set up your altar. You worship the Lord. You have a ton of work to do. You have to build your homes, organize, do all of that. You have to find a new school for your kids. All of it. And the very next thing you do is you go out into the desert for a week. 
Now, who here would say this? I'm so busy, I have a ton of work. Maybe I'll just spend an afternoon. Now, for the guys, I can't speak for the women, but for the guys, has anyone ever sent their wives and kids off to cabin or to go camping and say, I'll meet you later? No, just me? Okay, weirdos. All right, just kidding. I promise I'll be there. Or what, what I remember specifically, you go do all the work, honey, and I'll get there and I'll have dinner, but I'm going to wake up early so I can go back to work. No? Like that makes sense, right? I got a lot of work to do. I'll meet you when I meet you. Set up the trailer, do all the work, whatever. I'll come and eat dinner. And I promise I'll be back later that afternoon. And then later that afternoon, ah, I'm busy, I'll come back. And next thing you know, you just show up to clean up and leave. But this celebration, this festival of shelters, there's no shortcuts. You either do it all or you don't do it at all. But I have so much work to be done. We just worshiped the Lord. I offered all of it. And now what he wants me to do is to remember and celebrate him. But I'm busy having to spend time with God the whole time. And we can't cheat it. And it's so easy to do. That's why, honestly, your experience here on Sunday or whatever church you attend or go to will be so much better if you spent time with God during the week. If you anticipate this is all you need, I'm going to let you down. God's going to let you down. It's just going to fall short. But the reality is, is God doesn't let you down. He is faithful. Don't cheat yourself. And actually, the busier you are, the more time you need with him. Have you noticed that? Because later in Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah 8, spoiler alert, but hopefully in five weeks when we get there, you'll forget. But he talks about the joy of the Lord the joy of the Lord is my strength. So how do you have joy in the Lord if you don't spend time with Him? Worship must be our number one priority. And it reminds us that God renews our strength. And one other thing to note, it's important to remember and experience what God has done and is doing, but I would also suggest, as the Israelites did, that if we don't take time to reflect, we will start to compare. If we don't sit at the presence of the Lord at his feet and we don't praise him for what he's doing, even if it's hard, then what we'll start to do is look around what everyone else got. We'll fall into the trap of looking at what God is doing in other people's life and not be satisfied. Worshippers of the Lord need to re be renewed with their joy and worship renews the joy of the Lord. Because ultimately, what are we worshiping when we worship the Lord? That God has made you in his own image. And when you mess that up, he's given you a new life in his son. He's given you a new birth, a living hope through the resurrection from the death of Jesus Christ. He has adopted you. He's brought you home. You are now a royal priesthood. You are sealed forever. He's offered this. He's offered and has given his Holy Spirit. 
this new identity, this new banner of hope we have in Christ. Regardless of what kind of day we're having, the worst day and your best day. That's what we're worshiping. That's who we're worshiping. Not if the kids are doing well, if the work's going great, if your relationship with your husband or wife is great, your parents, your friends, and the list goes on. That's not what you're worshiping God over. You're worshiping God for who he is and what he's done. And Christ loves you regardless of the day that you're having. As we worship, we, we take what God has done for us and in us and renews our joy. And that is the secret of renewing our strength. When you feel overwhelmed, when you feel sorrowful, when you feel like you have no energy, you give yourself in worship. You rejoice what God has done and is doing through Christ. You will find a new found hope, a new reminder, a new joy finder. And when the Israelites returned to Jerusalem, their number one priority was to worship God. It was not to do things for God. I like to do things for God. He doesn't need me to do things for God. He desires me to worship Him. So the Israelites worshiped the Lord. Worship to give all of their self to God. They celebrated the feast. He renews their strength. And then finally the temple comes. He speaks about this promise of God's presence in verse 10. If you jump down to verse 10. Uh, it says, when the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes and took their places to blow their trumpets. And the Levites, the descendants of Ashman, classed their symbols to praise the Lord just as the King David had prescribed. With that praise and thanks, verse 11, they sang this song to the Lord. He is so good. He is faithful. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. So Ezra has now the foundation starting to settle in. And the significance of the temple is the place in the Old Testament where the glory of the Lord showed. Shekinah glory. The dedication of Solomon's temple, if you go back and read in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon's temple, when it was first built and it was dedicated to the Lord, the description was this was the high point of the Old Testament. This is what all the Jewish people thought it was all about. We have a temple, the Lord is with us. And the moment they did that, they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies, the very center and the priest came out from the holy place because the cloud of the Lord filled the house. The priest couldn't even do anything anymore because that glory of the Lord filled the house. The people at that time of that first temple didn't need to trust in God's presence. They saw it in this cloud, the same cloud that came and carried them and brought them out of the wilderness. It was there at the Ark of the Covenant. This, again, was the high point of the Old Testament. It was the anticipation of this great day when the glory of God was present. You couldn't deny it. But the older generation knew and experienced that cloud of glory. They remember when that happened at Solomon's temple. There was this great anticipation that it would happen again in the temple. There was this, we have it, we're ready to go. In verse 12, we read, But many of the older priests, Levites, and other leaders who had seen the first temple wept out loud when they saw the new temple's foundation. 
The others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and the weeping mingled together in a loud noise and could be heard far in the distance. But did you notice that in verse 12, many of the older priests, the people who saw the first temple, were upset. There's 50,000 people shouting and it all was mixed together, but the older generation who had witnessed the first temple were crying. They were upset. They were not happy. Well, first of all, the glory of the Lord would never show up in that form again because the Ark of the Covenant was no longer there. And regardless of what Indiana Jones says, we're not finding the Ark of the Covenant ever again. So for this older generation, it was an empty room with no Ark of the Covenant. They were sad and they were disappointed because they were anticipating the presence of the Lord to come again like he did before in the past. It's the whole nostalgic it was like the good old days. But now this is smaller. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. But the thing is, is God is always doing something. And it's easy for us to say, yeah, this is great, but there's so much to be done, and we're ready for God to do something great. And what is this all about? There's a pastor theologian from Scotland named Colin Smith that brought this to my attention as I was studying and really outline Ezra and Nehemiah very well. And he says this, what was missing from those who were mourning is they forgot how to be thankful. Learn to give thanks for what God has done and even especially when it is obvious when there's so much more to do and he doesn't do what he did in the past. Because this group remembered the vastness of this first temple. These, these older men saw the footings for the foundation and thought, that's it? That's so small. That's all we get now? You mean we traveled all this way and we don't even get another temple? And just because just we have fancy new projectors, I have this uh, temple size comparison for you that you can take a look at. And I'll try to describe it for you. So over on the right side, you'll see where it says Herod's temple. You see where it says the holy place. If you would cut the holy place in half, that was the size of the entire temple. Now if you look below, you'll see Solomon's temple. See how small that is? It's very disappointing. If you come from a 10-bedroom home and you move into a, a studio apartment, where are you going to put your stuff? That's how they saw it. Eventually, Herod takes over the temple project because he wants to get on the good graces of the Jewish people, but really lavish himself. So he turns it into Herod's temple and makes it even bigger than Solomon's temple and the court of the tabernacle. And then, this is from the software that I have, but the American football field, or football field, that's... Size comparison. Now, if you just look over to the left, and I don't want to get too much into the end times because you're going to do a Bible study here at the beginning in fall, but that's what Ezekiel's dream of the new third temple will be. Do you see the size difference? And also, this doesn't show, but there's a river of life flowing through. And if you want to read this on your own, you can read Ezekiel 40 and 
Ezekiel 11, but, but it just, just for the sake of seeing why they were so upset. So if you go back to Herod's temple and you just look at the word holy, that's how big the entire temple was going to be, and they were so very disappointed. And yet, what they couldn't see is that God had begun a new work, and it was no longer going to be about a temple. Again, beware of delayed thanksgiving. Don't thank God for something once it's completed. Thank God through the whole process. So the temple was built to house the Ark of the Covenant. There was no Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had been missing since Babylon came in and took over. That means the cloud, that cloud, that presence of the Lord, that Shekinah glory would never show up again in the Old Testament. So how could the glory of God come down if there is no ark? What is the point of having an empty room if there's no glory for God? But when, the, when God's presence, his glory never came to the second temple, it was never, they never felt good again about it. However, the prophet Haggai, in Haggai, excuse me, uh, 2, verse 3 and 5, he gives them this warning, this reminder, and this is what he says. I'm going to read it to you. This is after they're all upset and they're pouting. This is not as cool as the old stuff. And he says this in verse 2, Say this to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judea, and Joshua, Jeshua, son of Jehoiakim, the high priest, and the remnant of God's people there in the land. Does anyone remember this house, this temple, and its former splendor? How in comparison does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. Well, yeah, actually, as a matter of fact, you're right. But now, the Lord says, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Josiah, son, Jehokahan, the high priest. Be strong, all you people still left in the land. And now get to work, for I am with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. My spirit remains among you, just as I promised when you came out of Egypt. So don't be afraid. So the prophet came and said, it's not about the temple. And yet some of the Jewish people are still having a hard time with it. To understand. What God is saying is that you're not going to experience my presence in the wondrous ways of days past in Solomon's temple. But I, the Lord, am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. One day your faith will turn to sight. You will see the glory of God. He will call us home. Or he'll come and get us. And we will see this. And, and it's described in Revelation, the shake of the heavens and the earth when Christ returns. And that will be more glorious than the cloud he arrived in. But until that day comes, we are to worship him. And it is through that worship that we have the joy of the Lord, and we get a very small glimpse of what that will be. We walk by faith, not by sight, and we worship by faith and not by sight. He gives us a promise of his spirit. I am with you, and my spirit is with you. Many of us are longing for a miracle, yet the miracle has already taken place through his son. I am with you, my spirit remains in your midst, and fear not. When you're disappointed, trust in God. When you're sad, trust in God. When you're fearful, trust in God. Worship, it matters. And again, it's more than singing and praying. 
listening. It's offering yourself, all of you, throughout the week so you can rejoice and trust in God. Give yourself to worship. You are his and he is yours. We know better, at least we should, but sometimes we think God views us the way that we view ourselves and that's based on performance. If I'm having a good, good day, God thinks highly of me. If I'm having a bad day, I go run and hide. But that's not true. For those who put their trust in Christ know that when God sees us, regardless of the day that, that we're having, he sees Christ. Yes, we have to repent. Yes, we have to come back to him. He sees Christ. And that's what we're here for, to worship the Lord because he is worthy. Let's pray. God, thank you for your presence, for your promised presence, Lord. And, and uh, as we read through the Old Testament, we, it's so easy for us to get disappointed uh, or point out the Israelites for being so disappointed in you. And then yet, if we stop and reflect, we're no better, Lord. We always try to go back to the good old days, even if they weren't good old days, but just because we don't want to offer ourselves as living sacrifice. Help us not live on yesterday's home runs or whatever. Let us worship you here now because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Lord, we are so thankful for this building, but yet we don't want to make it an idol. We don't want anything to get in front of you. We we are so thankful to be here, just like we are so thankful to be in wardens, in the backyards, in the coffee tables, living rooms. Lord, you are good and you are worthy of our praise. So Lord, we are excited for all that you'll do in this place. But mostly, we're excited for what you'll do in and through us, in our community, in our homes, and yet as we gather to worship. We just thank you for this opportunity to come and worship you. Help us focus in uh, the burnt offering, all of us to you. You own it anyways, Lord. Lord, let us take time to celebrate not just what you're going to do, but what you are doing, Lord. And help us be reminded not to give up of meeting together to worship you in this temple. And yet, our bodies is a living temple for the Holy Spirit that lives in us. So Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we're excited we get to sing more songs. We love you. You're worthy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.